Dr. Timothy O'Donnell, and I would like to welcome you to this program where we will be examining the Gospel of St. Luke. The great St. Augustine once said, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. And all of us as believing, committed Christians want to come to know our Lord better. And this precious gospel that has been entrusted to the church is one of the principal ways in which we can come to know Jesus better. Let us begin by invoking the aid of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who did instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us by the same Spirit to have a right judgment in all things, and ever to rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we proceed on with our examination of Luke's Gospel, it'd be good to take an overview and look at some of the principal themes which are developed in that particular gospel. As we had said earlier, St. Luke is the one evangelist who in a special way focuses upon God's mercy, particularly Christ's compassion for sinners. We can think, for example, of the beautiful passage in chapter 7 involving the penitent woman, or probably one of our Lord's greatest parables, that of the prodigal son, which speaks about the restoration of a broken relationship between a father and a son, and how the father mercifully turns and welcomes back the son who had gone astray. Other things that characterize this gospel, Luke also reveals a great sensitivity and reverence for women in this gospel. In this gospel, more than any other, we find a number of noble women who are presented for all Christians to imitate. Clearly, the Blessed Virgin Mary, above all other women, but also Elizabeth and Anna, the prophetess. We also have the widow of name, who has her son restored back to life by the saving action of Jesus Christ. We also have Mary and Martha, Mary Magdalene, and Luke even talks about the ministering women, those women who traveled around daily with our Lord and provided for him and for the apostles. This is also a gospel that focuses upon the poor and the lowly, the Anawim, those who are disenfranchised in so many ways. Christ's love for the poor breaks through, particularly in the Sermon of the Mount in this particular gospel when we recognize that no man is worthless and should be considered worthless for whom Christ has died and shed his precious blood for. Luke brings the social dimension of our Lord's teaching to the forefront in this gospel. It is also in many ways a gospel of prayer. No other evangelist records our Lord having prayed so frequently. Before every great event in his life, St. Luke portrays our Lord as having spent time in prayer. Obviously, he was trying to teach us and communicate to us the importance of prayer in our own lives. Our Lord's instructions on how to pray are given a fuller treatment in the Gospel of Luke, more so than in any other Gospel. And some of the most beautiful prayers that we have in the Catholic Church are preserved in this beautiful Gospel. Mary's Magnificat, in which her soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. 
Zachary's Benedictus when his son is finally circumcised and he opens his mouth and proclaims the glory of the God of God and then also Simeon in the temple with his nuke dementis when he says now you may send forth your servant O Lord for I have finally seen the salvation of Israel all these prayers are works of tremendous beauty and this leads us very naturally to the next theme the prayer is always the fruit of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is very active throughout this gospel and Luke explicitly makes numerous references to the action and the work of the Holy Spirit more so than any other evangelist and of course the great work of the Holy Spirit continues not only throughout this gospel but is seen especially in Acts of the Apostles which has also been called the gospel of the Holy Spirit in many ways also this is the great gospel written for the Gentiles he's not as interested as Matthew was in the Jewish background and tradition of Jesus he's much more interested in bringing the gospel message and the truth of Christ to a Gentile audience and therefore oftentimes where in other gospels there may be preservations of certain Aramaic or Hebrew expressions he translates those into Greek because he recognizes that he is writing primarily for a Gentile audience the basic structure of this gospel is very similar to the other two synoptic gospels it starts with Jesus's life in Galilee and is a gentle but powerful movement towards the great city of Jerusalem where we'll reach the climax of the passion and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ but because we have to remember that the gospel is the beginning and acts as the second part of this work we do need to be attentive to that geographical movement especially as believing Catholics because in the gospel you have the movement from Galilee to Jerusalem and when you get to Acts of the Apostles you have the movement from Jerusalem to Rome which will become the new center of the Christian faith this having been said by way of introduction let us begin now and take a look at the opening of the gospel Luke is a great historian of course not only is the scripture inspired but Luke himself tells us that he did the work of a good historian checking things out being sure of his sources we find right in the opening of chapter one he tells us the purpose inasmuch as many have undertaken to draw up a narrative concerning the things that have been fulfilled among us even as they who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word who have handed them down to us I also have determined after following up all things carefully from the very first to write for thee most excellent Theophilus an orderly account that thou mayest understand the certainty of the words in which thou hast been instructed a lot of things we want to comment upon there first of all this is beautiful classical Greek it is a type and style worthy of a Greek historian like Herodotus or Thucydides he shows here that he can write in the best of the classical tradition and he's writing here as a historian notice he mentions that he has spoken with eyewitnesses that this gospel is not fictitious it's not a myth it's not something that was invented several centuries later he spoke with people who were there and he's talking about the words that have been handed down to us that's where we get our word traditio tradition the sacred tradition the divine message of the gospel which has been handed down 
he says that he followed everything up from the very beginning, writing it down that Theophilus, who probably was a petty Roman official, we really don't know who he was, the name Theophilus means beloved of God, but a man certainly of some standing, that he would understand the certitude of the words in which he had been instructed. Because before we had all the writing of the Gospels, basically you had a fundamental oral catechesis. If someone wanted to learn about Christ or become a Christian, they weren't simply handed a book. They were given the oral tradition and the teaching concerning the saving words and actions of Jesus. As we proceed down through time, later part in the first century, these things began to be written down. Obviously, Matthew's Gospel was already in existence. Also, the Gospel of Mark was in existence, which was probably written in Rome, and Luke certainly would have had access to that particular Gospel. But again, the emphasis upon certainty, truth, that the Gospels are historically reliable. He places this in the context of classical history, as we shall see. He then goes on in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zachary of the course of Abia, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. All right, the priest's name was Zachary. To be a priest, you had to be descendant from Aaron. But we're told here, not only was Zachary a priest, descendant of Aaron, but also his wife was one of the daughters of Aaron. And therefore, we're dealing with a priestly family. Both were just before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, but they had no son. For Elizabeth was barren, and they were now both advanced in years. I almost have to laugh at this. It seems almost like every time you get somebody in sacred scripture who is just and blameless or a key figure in salvation history, they never seem to be able to have any kids. Abraham and Sarah couldn't have kids. Numerous other people uh, in the Old Testament who had a special role to play seem to have difficulty in conceiving. Now, this was a horrible thing for a Jewess at this particular time. Shows you how far we've fallen. Today, where oftentimes pregnancy is considered a disease, back then it was considered a curse not to have a child. As a matter of fact, according to certain teachings of some of the rabbis, if in your marriage you didn't have a child, that could be grounds for divorce. Some even spoke that there could be an excommunication from the people of God if you didn't have a child. So this was a tremendous burden that they had to bear. Here they were faithful, devout, righteous and believing, and yet for some mysterious reason God had not blessed them. Now we know why, which should give all of us faith and we have our crosses when things come into our lives that we really don't understand why is God allowing this to happen. We have to remember that there is a divine perspective and even though we can't see now, there will come a time, maybe it'll only be in heaven, but there will come a time when we will understand. I remember certain times in my own life, gosh, where I was praying for something with the greatest fervor. I really need this, Lord. Please, please. Thinking more, my will be done, not thy will be done. And then later on, maybe a year or two later, I found out, my gosh, if I had actually gotten that thing, or if the Lord had you know, listened to my prayer in the way I wanted him to, that would have been an unmitigated disaster. So there has to be that type of faith, that type of confidence in the work of the Lord. But let's continue on now with Luke. Now it came to pass, 
while he was officiating in the order of his course as priest before God, according to the custom of the priest's office, that he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord to burn incense. Now, normally when you were called up to serve as a priest, you would serve up there for about a week. But you have to remember there were about 20,000 priests. So the likelihood that you would ever, even in your life, be selected to go and burn incense was very remote. So the fact that when the lots were cast, sort of like rolling dice, so to speak, and the lot fell to him, this was a tremendous honor, not only to assist with the sacrifice of the animals, which all the priests would do because of the throngs of faithful who would be coming to the ancient temple, but to actually to be able to go into the temple and burn incense. This was almost as great an honor as the high priest. Now, he couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. The only one to go into the Holy of Holies was the great high priest who would go in there one day a year on the great solemn day of atonement. And, of course, they were, that's where God's presence was. And there were actual reports that they would actually tie something around his leg in the event that he was to die in there, being in the presence of God, that they could pull him out by pulling on the rope since he had entered in behind the great veil into the Holy of Holies. Now, in the structure of the temple, you would have entered, the priest who was to burn incense would have gone right into the temple. The faithful weren't allowed in. They had to stay outside and bring their sacrifice and pray in the various courtyards around there. But he would go up before that magnificent curtain of purple and scarlet that hid and veiled the Holy of Holies. He would go in there. There would have been five great menorah, you know, the seven branch candlesticks on the side that would have been the only illumination. And right in front of that curtain, there was a great altar. And he would have been allowed then to enkindle the incense that would rise up before the Lord. Now, the incense or the hour of incense was either very early in the morning, like right at the break of day, or in the evening at the end of the day. Given the fact that we're dealing with salvation history, I tend to believe that this was probably early in the morning with the freshness and the newness of revelation. So he goes in there alone, and that's the way it's supposed to be to burn incense. And we continue now with the sacred text in verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right of the altar of incense. And Zachary, seeing him, was troubled, and fear fell upon him. Now, you can understand why he would be fearful. He was the one who got the lots. He was the only one supposed to be in there. Then all of a sudden, there is this figure standing at the right side of the altar. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zachary, for thy petition has been heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Talk about a shock. He's probably already terrified that somebody else is there. But then this figure tells him not to be afraid and tells him that his prayer is actually going to be heard and that he's going to have a son. Now, it's sort of interesting. There's a couple of ways that we can look at this when he says, your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth is going to bear thee a son. Now, many have interpreted, of course, that down through the, over the years, he and Elizabeth had been praying for a son. And that may, in fact, be a valid interpretation. But it may even be more to the point, the fact that now they were very well on, advanced in years. Elizabeth was no longer at a stage in her life where children were possible. Would they still be praying for a son 
even after all those years and now that they are old. A number of commentators have said probably not. What he was probably trained for was the coming of the Messiah. Like all the devout Jews at that time, they wanted to see the Messiah come and free them from their sins and possibly also free them from the Romans. So the petition that might have been heard might have been the petition for the coming of the Messiah. But the way in which God's plan was to be worked out, that before the Messiah come, his herald was to come. And so the angel continues with this message of joy. Joy is a great theme in all of the writings of St. Luke, in the Gospel and in Acts of the Apostles. So the angel continues with this message. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great before the Lord. He shall drink no wine or strong drink, and shall be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now you got to remember that because we're going to be coming back to that. Filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. In utero, the unborn child will be affected by the Holy Spirit. This whole gospel is built around conceptions and pregnancies and is so pro-life. Any Christian who would read this with faith would have to see abortion as an unspeakable crime because it's so contrary to the way in which God communicates and works in this particular gospel. But we continue to find out more about John the Baptist, the future Baptist. And he shall bring back to the Lord their God many of the children of Israel. And he himself shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn their hearts of their fathers and their children and the incredulous to the wisdom of the just to prepare for the Lord a perfect people. What a message about a son that you thought probably by now you were never going to have. Now what's interesting to note here, remember at the beginning of the program I said how Luke was writing in beautiful classical Greek. He did that for the first few verses. Now that we start to get into this story, the Greek is no longer in that particular form, which tells us what? That he is being faithful to an original Aramaic source. That there is some other source from which he is deriving this information. And he, in his writing in Greek in this particular gospel, is trying to be faithful to an Aramaic or Hebrew original. As a matter of fact, if you translate a number of these verses back from the Greek into the Hebrew, you find that there is poetry, there is all sorts of rhythm, plays on words in the language, which again indicate that that is in fact what he is doing. Now he gets this message of great joy, and what is the reaction? Verse 18, And Zachary said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. No joy, no gratitude that he's received, but basically a doubt. How am I to know this? This isn't the way the world works. He might have even been thinking, I've been praying for this for years, and this has never happened. Then the angel responds, and for some reason this always reminds me of the Wizard of Oz when they go in to see the wizard, you know, I am the great Oz that strikes terror. Well, in a certain sense, he responds, Zachary, with unbelief, and you get this overwhelming reaction where the angel now reveals fully his identity to him. Gabriel, the name which means in Hebrew, the might of God, or the strength of God, reveals himself. I am Gabriel, who stand in the presence of God. 
and I have been sent to speak to thee and to bring thee this good news, the evangelon, the gospel. And behold, thou shalt be dumb and unable to speak until the day when these things come to pass, because thou hast not believed my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. So talk about a divine blast. He should have reacted with joy, gratitude, faith, and thanksgiving, but instead with doubt. And because of that, he loses his gift of speech. He sins through his speech, so now that power of speech is taken away. What's going on in the meantime? We're told in verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zachary, and they wondered at his tarrying so long in the temple. But when he did come out, he could not speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, but he remained dumb. Now you imagine the reaction of a large number of faithful Jews praying outside the temple when the priest who was sent in to burn incense comes out and can't speak and indicates to them that he has seen a vision. So in Jerusalem, this must have caused quite a stir indeed. And of course, the great holy city is very important for him as well. Continuing on, and it came to pass when the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Now after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, conceived and she secluded herself for five months, saying, Thus has the Lord dealt with me in the days when he deigned to take away my reproach among men. couple things we want to observe. The priests, while they were serving in the temple, were to remain celibate. They were not to have any sexual relations with their wives. So, the time of celibacy is ended. He returns to his home. They have relations. And Elizabeth conceives a child. So we see that this prophecy of the angel Gabriel is fulfilled. We are then told that she secludes herself for five months. Why would she hide away for five months? Well, we don't know. Perhaps it might have been about a morning sickness. My wife certainly would relate very well to that if that was part of the story. But probably for five months, why? Here she is, an older woman, advanced in years. She had been praying for this gift, this grace, for years. Now, obviously, in a special way, God has intervened in her life and has given her this tremendous blessing and taken away her reproach. She probably wanted to spend the time in prayer, in thanksgiving, in intimate communion with God, which probably was a perfect way to prepare her eventually for the great visit uh, from her cousin, the Blessed Virgin. We now move from this first scene to the second scene where we're going to hear the announcement of yet another birth. We continue on with verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. Sixth month, sixth month of what? The sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. See, the whole thing is structured around pregnancy and having children. So in the sixth month of her pregnancy, now the angel Gabriel, the same one who had brought the great tidings to Zachary, and there will be a contrast now between Zachary's response and the response of the Blessed Virgin, was sent from God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. This town in Galilee, Nazareth, was really not famous for anything. It had never been mentioned once in the entire Old Testament. 
And yet the town was along an important caravan route. And if you were to climb up on the hill overlooking, you could probably see the blue of the Mediterranean Sea in the distance. Well, not to a royal palace or to a princess in Rome, but to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And when the angel had come to her, he said, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she had heard him, she was troubled at his word. Now notice the power and the beauty of this greeting. How different it is from Zachary. The greeting and recognizing Mary as gratia plena, full of grace, surrounded, enveloped with the favor and the goodness of the Lord. Blessed art thou among women, among all the women on the face of the earth. She, more than anyone else, had found favor with God. Now notice that Mary is not fearful. We're told that when she had heard him, she was troubled at his word, not at the presence of the angel, but at the word he spoke. Why? Probably because the virgin was so humble that hearing such words of praise that she had been so highly exalted and stood in God's favor in such a way, we are told, she kept pondering what manner of greeting this might have been. Might have been she was caught up in a spiritual ecstasy. So she continues to ponder, and that Greek word for ponder implies a very deep, intense reflection. What does this mean to me? And so she continues, where the angel says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for thou hast found grace with God. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shalt bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of David his father, and he shall be king over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. But Mary said to the angel, How shall this happen, since I do not know man? Now it's a strange expression, but what is implied in that is that I will not know a man. We don't fully understand what was meant, but it seems that Mary had taken some type of vow of virginity. So the question is asked, How shall this be? Not with disbelief that this cannot be, but the how implies how. In other words, how is this going to take place? Since I'm not going to be having relations with a man, how will God work out this great miracle? Clearly from what is communicated, she comes to a deeper understanding of the nature of this child, that this child will be the son of the Most High and will inhabit the throne of David his father. So did Mary know that this child was to be the Messiah? Clearly from the angel's message, we would have to say that she most certainly did. And we'll be picking up with this and continuing on with this in a future episode. Let us end now with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. Thank you for being with us today, and God bless you. Mm -hmm.